So we'll now have, uh, be reading the word um, from 1 Samuel chapter 18, starting at verse 6 um, through the end of the chapter. And as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. They have ascribed to David 10,000, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand, and he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here's my elder daughter, Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I? And, and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merib Saul's daughter should have, give, should have given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Meholite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistine, Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines, and when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed two hundred of the Philistines. And Brought, and David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michael for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then, he com then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Amy, for reading God's word for us this morning. Good morning. My name is Josh Kim. I am one of the assistant pastors here at Christ Central Church. And it is my privilege to continue our sermon series in 1 Samuel this morning. And during the month of July, Pastor Omari and I, uh, we want to focus in on chapters 18 through 20. Uh, doing a series within a series. And the topic that we're going to cover during the month of July is on friendship. So next four weeks, Pastor Omari and I will preach through uh, chapters 18 through 20 on topic of friendship. And we're, convict, we're convicted that this topic of friendship is something that we really need, especially now 
as we wrestle with all that is going on within our country, not being able to be with one another, with the social unrest that comes, we really need to dwell on what God has to say about friendship according to 1 Samuel 18 through 20. It is perhaps the understatement of the year for me to declare that we are living in very difficult and odd times. What we often used to take for granted, how we live and order our lives by, have changed quite a lot. This was so evident to me the other day as my son was riding his scooter out in the neighborhood streets. And of course, if you know me, because he's my son, he may have inherited my clumsiness, and I often tend to trip, on, trip over anything and everything, including air itself. My son also tripped over a curve, and he fell while scraping his knees. I know it hurts, especially for a young boy like him, and I know I saw the tears swelling up in his eyes as he fell over there. And what proceeded to happen next was one of the cutest things I ever saw, but also one of the most horrifying things I have ever seen. As he was wincing in pain in the streets, holding his knees that he scraped, the neighborhood kids started running towards him. All who were socially distant at the moment, all ran towards him as we watched in horror. And breaking all kinds of social distance rules and guidelines, one kid decided to pick up Seth with his hands. The other one picked up his scooter with his hands. And another child ran home, brought back medicine and bandages, peeled it off with her own hands, and proceeded to put the bandages on my boy. All the while, looking directly into his eyes and asked him, are you doing okay? Very close and personal. I thought it was one of the cutest things, at the same time most horrifying things, in light of COVID-19 social distance guidelines. What an emotional, what an odd emotional thing to watch as the parents that we experience today. We are taught to teach our children to share, to be nice to one another, to say hello, to give one of the things that you have. But now, in the COVID-19 days, what we're telling our children is do not share. Don't dare share what you have because you might share more than you can handle. Don't be nice to other people by saying hello. Stay far away from them as much as you can. Cover your faces. Do not show your face to other people. Now we're telling them, no, don't do this. Stay away. Keep distance. Don't go too close to others. And I wish this was only true because of the coronavirus. But we also realize the things that we teach our children when they're young, things that we learned as a children growing up, often changes as you get older, don't they? Not only the lessons that we're learning in the society today, but then the lessons that we see from the world that often changes. The earlier lessons of a children that says, share, be nice, yield, and sacrifice. It's okay to lose, to give in, to cry, tend to change a little bit more as you get older. And the voice is the world that says, keep things to yourself. Be nice becomes, do not show weakness to other people. Listen becomes, you gotta have the last word. Be humble becomes, dominate the conversation. Learn becomes, you better teach. Be the head, be the leader. Giving becomes consuming. Civil dialogue, serving and compromising has turned into name calling, backstabbing, vengeance. And we find ourselves fighting just about any topic and politicizing anything that comes our way. As one author lamented by saying, we have lost it. We have lost our ability to get along. We lost our ability to get along. Or another way to say, we have lost our ability to friend one another, especially in our disagreements. That is why all the more so, I think we need these next four weeks for us to dwell in the scripture on the topic of friendship.
Because the question that we need to wrestle is not only who is my neighbor, because I think we already know who our neighbors are by now, but the more pressing question that we have to answer is, won't you be my neighbor? Won't you be my neighbor? Meaning, can you love your neighbor as God has commanded you to do so? Can you really friend your neighbor that God brings in your life today? Chapter 18 and 20 highlights perhaps the most well-known friendship, one of the most beautiful friendship of Jonathan and David. And Pastor Omari will share that when he comes back from his vacation. But for next two weeks, I want to invite you to look at a broken relationship that Saul experiences in these chapters. Something that we could easily miss in light of the beauty of Jonathan and David. What we miss is a tragic broken relationships, broken friendships of Saul that he experiences in these chapters. And as we examine Saul's broken friendship, we can again see that Saul's heart is often the reflection of our own hearts and are often reflection of our own broken relationships and broken friendships that only God can cover in us. The first aspect of Saul's broken friendship stems from his failed relationship with himself. His failed relationship with himself. In his New York Times bestseller, Beautiful Boy, the author and father, David Sheff, writes this of his son, Nick, who is addicted to drugs. He writes, I will miss having Nick in my life. I will miss his fun, uh, funny phone messages, his humor, the stories, our talks, our walks, watching movies with him, dinners together, and the transcendent feeling between us that is love. I'll miss all of it. I miss it now. And here it sinks in. I don't have it now. I have not had it whenever Nick has been on drugs. Nick is absent. Only his shell remains. I have been afraid, terrified to lose Nick, but I have lost him. And in this chapter, similarly, we find Saul losing who he once was, who is meant to be, and who is supposed to be as the king over Israel. Saul's lost ways were evident in the battle against Goliath. And it's a great story of David triumphant over Goliath, but it is also a tragic story of Saul's failure to stand up to be the king, the leader of God's people, to fight the battle. Rather than being at the forefront, representing who God was and fighting Goliath, we see Saul hiding behind and waiting others to fight the battle on his behalf. You see, when he's not doing what he's supposed to do, he often gets into trouble. And even David, this great King David, learns this the hard way. Later in 2 Samuel 11, in the onset of his adulterous relationship, the author of 2 Samuel writes this to tell us, what happens right before the fall. 2 Samuel 11.1, 1, it says, In the spring of the year, the time, the time when the kings go out to the battle, David sent Joab and his servants with them and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. It says, But David remained at Jerusalem, and after that he commits adultery and murder. Furthermore, Israelite kings had a specific duties outlined in the Levitical law God gives them in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 17 says, When he, the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest. And he shall be with them, and he shall read it all the days of his life. He may learn to fear the Lord his God, he says. And later on, verse 20, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandments. This was the duty of the king that God outlines for all the kings of Israel. But what does Saul do in this chapter? The exact opposite of what he's called to do. In verse 7, it says, When the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, he says, and this saying displeased him. He said, and they have ascribed to David 10,000, and to me they have ascribed thousands. 
And what more can he have but the kingdom? In verse 9 it says, And Saul eyed David from that day on. The word eyed here in verse 9 is more accurately translated as kept jealous eye on David. Saul absolutely thought that he should be better than David in direct violation of Deuteronomy 17. He is to be lifted up above his brothers. He's the king after all. And throughout this narrative, you see that Saul consistently refers himself as a king in verse 22 and 25. And this narrative tells us he is still the king, but in the name only. He forgets all the duties of being a king. And this chapter, ironically, signals his kingship being taken away from him and given to David, the next king. But that's not all that he loses of himself here. This failed sense of his calling as a king spirals down to his loss of his relationship with his family. The following narrative of Saul's action in how he used his family upon his failure to pin David to the wall with spear is tragic. Rather than turning away from his failed ways and turning to the Lord, we see him using his daughters away, a tool to kill David. But both in verse 17 and 20, Saul uses both of his daughters in order to put David at the forefront of the battle in hopes that Philistines will kill him. And later, even later on, we will see that he even loses the trust of his daughters and his son Jonathan in all of his brokenness. Church, so what has caused Saul to lose his relationship with himself? What has caused Saul to not be able to see who he was called to be? What has caused Saul to lose the ways that he was called to be the king of Israel? The cause of the spiraling down of his life is sin, unrepentant sin. Sin at its core disrupts who you are and who you're meant to be. Isn't that so obvious in Genesis chapter 1? As image bearers, Adam and Eve were created to obey God's commandment. But once upon, upon the failures of him, them being able to live up to this call, in his disobedience, the consequences that come is no longer they're able to fulfill the purposes they were created to be, who they were called to be. You see, Saul in his pride, sin of envy of David, ultimately to another sin of attempted murder, using others for his own gain, jealousy and anger, outrage, lo loses himself in the midst of it all. Saul loses his relationship with oneself and thus forfeits his right to represent who God is. In church, as I said before, Saul is a reflection of our hearts. We often say after we have sinned, and by God's grace, is able to look at ourselves more clearly, we tend to say, I think I might have just lost my mind there when we fall into sin. Just the other day, as my wife and I got into a fight, an argument, and we're going back and forth, back and forth, and at one point we sat down and realized how silly we were. We just wanted our last word. And in the heat of the moment, we say or do things or worse than what we meant to be, and we often say, I just lost sense of who I am. This is not who I am, but I have been demonized as the sinners are described to be. It's not just about losing control, but rather sin continues to demonize us in rebellions of God's creation intent for us. Sin devours us, makes us forget and lose who we were meant to be, and sin causes us to point inward to make us consistent consumers instead of givers. And when we do that, we cannot love. And when we do that, we cannot serve. We cannot obey. And we cannot friend others. And that's where we begin this morning. Friends, have you searched and examined your heart lately? And isn't that how David consistently prays throughout his psalm? In Psalm 139, he beautifully writes, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, Lord. 
What does that mean for us today? In light of COVID-19 and the racial injustice, in light of all the political drama and consistent wrestling with our own sin of the day, it means perhaps before pointing our fingers outward, perhaps start, before starting to argue about policies or candidates, we begin with our own hearts, searching and checking before the Lord. Whose purpose am I fighting for? What am I called to live for? Who am I in light of who God is? After all, at the heart, this should not be an issue of Republicans or Democrats. No one political party, not one agenda, policy, desire, thoughts, preferences, away is something that we ought to stand for or search for. We do not live or die by those arguments, or you will lose yourself in it. It becomes an idol that will consume you. As Christ followers, what we're called to do is look at the world, our world with the perspective of God and the standards of God according to God's word. And at the heart of the gospel is this, that God loves you. And preach that. How? By loving God and loving others. And the question we ought to wrestle with is, how are we loving our neighbor this morning? How have we not valued God's image in one another? And that means if we sanctify the life of an unborn child, then we stand for that together as body of Christ. But we also stand together as body of Christ when the sanctity of black bodies are under fire. If we see God's name used in vain, we stand together for that as well because we are called to be God's ambassadors, God's representatives, salt and light, difference makers, persecuted yet rejoicing, committed to God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We stand around the cross of Christ and remember whom Christ calls us to follow. And remember whom God has called us to be. And when we do that, friendships are formed. You know, true friendship is not formed by looking at each other. Biblical definition of friendship is formed when we stand side by side looking at Christ and the cross of Christ and looking at each other through those lens. Saul's broken relationship stems from losing his very own self and very call that he's called to be. And in many ways, making things of politics, trying to stay in office, of being a king, and personal, me versus you, rather than seeing what God is doing and what God is calling him to be. Second aspect of Saul's uh, broken friendship involved his failed relationship with others. Second aspect of Saul's broken friendship involves his failed relationship with others. Gary Thomas, in his renowned marriage book, Sacred Marriage, starts his first chapter by posting, uh, posing this question to all the couples that want to get married. It says, what if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? And I believe this concept is true not only in marriage context, but in any relationship that we're in. God's purpose is to make us holy rather than to make you happy. But far too often, our failed relationship with oneself leads to our failed relationship with others. And what Saul loses here is David, one he loved. What is the grace of this story for Saul? Poor Saul, as one would say. I think the grace that we find in this story for Saul's life is actually his relationship with David. His relationship with David is a reminder, grace from the Lord, for Saul to repent and turn back to God. You know, even before we get to this chapter, and even before we get to the chapter 17 where David bursts onto the scene and fights Goliath, we see that Saul already knew David. In chapter 16, we find that Saul is tormented in his spirit after the Lord leaves him. And in his misery, he seeks out a skillful artist who will play liar to soothe his mood during his troubles. And at the recommendation of one of his servants, David is brought to him. In chapter 16, verse 21 of 1 Samuel says, And David came to Saul and entered his service. And notice what he says. And Saul loved him greatly and became his armbearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, David's father, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor 
in my sight. And notice in this chapter, even after the victory of the war, this war general, David, still served Saul in this manner. In verse 10, the next day, harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. He raved within his house while David was playing liar, as he did day by day. You see, again, Saul had this prior relationship with David, and Saul greatly loved him. Saul was refreshed by David's presence in his life and the service he offered to him. Saul, in his friendship, in his relationship with David, received comfort and grace. And if that wasn't enough, David is one of his most trusted war generals. The scripture reminds us that every time David went out, no matter what circumstances Saul places him into, David is victorious. David is able to defeat the arch nemesis of Israel time and time and time again. Verse 5, And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So the Saul set him over the men of war, and this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servant. You see, David brought much glory to Saul. Furthermore, you see, David is a picture of a Saul, whom Saul used to be. Remember Saul? Remember when he said what he said when Samuel first found him? When, he first, when Samuel first said, you ought to be the king of Israel. This is what Saul says in chapter 9, verse 21. Saul answered Samuel, saying, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Remember that as you listen to David speaking in verse 18 when he's called to be the king's son-in-law. And David said to Saul, Who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? This echo of whom Saul used to be in young David's life. In many ways than not, David is a reminder of who Saul once was and whom Saul was called to be. And here is the gospel for Saul in his relationship with David. David's relationship for Saul is God's grace. A reminder, although painful at that, a difficult relationship at that. But David is for Saul an invitation to turn, to repent, to grow, to change. But the sad reality, church, is that even despite seeing God is with David, and that's the amazing part, isn't it? Saul is able to see that God is with David, but rather than running towards God, he fears and runs away. First Samuel eighteen twelve. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him. Verse 15, and Saul saw that they had great success. He stood in fearful awe of him. Verse 29, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Saul chooses to be at odds with David. Fear moves you away from relationships. Fear moves you away from one another to protect what you got. Friendship is often broken when we see fear dominating one's heart rather than love and humility to lean in to one another. Fear pushes others out. Love draws others in. Church, what we miss, during, uh, what we miss most during COVID-19 is presence of the other. We have lost much this past several months especially as we endured tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy. We sense this keen loss of not being together. And it is not just the comfort of being together. I was talking to one of you recently, and we were talking about the death of George Floyd. And this member shared how he longed to hear Pastor Howard speak on this. He shared about how he found Christ Central in light of Keith Lamont Scott's shooting. 
And he was drawn to our church, not only because of the comfort of our community, but he says the gospel and this community that was preached. It was comforting, but it was also challenging, he said. Rebuking, convicting, and the gospel that was preached in light of the context that God was giving the church drew him near to this community. By all means, I think our church is probably not the easiest church you could find in the city of Charlotte, let alone this nation. You know, I could tell you that. Even as Asian American, I could tell you that. In light of a lot of racial talks that tend to be black and white, I could say that I often find myself lost in the middle of the conversations. As Asian Americans, we sometimes are complicit in our racism, we also are the burnt end of racism that we receive. And that's the reality for my family. Even as a, being a pastor here, we struggle to find our place at times in church like ours. But that's also a reality that we came to embrace. This past year has been a revelation in many ways for me, in many ways for my family. I have been absolutely received by you all and loved well and cared for in many ways, and we are so grateful for that. But I also have seen my heart more clear than ever before. I've seen what I was so used to, what my comforts are, the things that I was thinking that this was a normal part of my life growing up as an immigrant child in Chicago suburbs. I have been pushed, challenged, confronted. I have seen my sin in different ways. And I was frankly surprised how messed up I was, more so than ever before. I've seen my failure to slow down, hurt people in ministry, hurt people in my family. I've seen people hurt by my own brokenness and baggage that I bring, even as a pastor. I have not loved you well, and I have failed you again and again and again. But boy, I think it was for God's glory. Surely it was God's way of sanctifying who I am and calling me to who I'm supposed to be, not only for me, but also for the church. Was it always nice and comforting? Of course not. But well, who says it needs to be like that? We have no doubt this is where God is calling us to be. And that call is the same, not only for the pastors of this church, but every single one of us in our church. In our friendship with one another in this church, this relationship that you and I have is for the growth of our church. What I mean is to grow, to be more and more and more like Christ's followers every day, or sanctification, to use the theological language. Church, we as the body of Christ, church is never called to be inwardly focused. It is never called to be a place of consumption or even comfort. It's never a place where you find all the stuff that you want fulfilled. It's not heaven on earth. We long to be. But you will find community here. You'll find the mission. You will find camaraderie with one another. And as a result, you will find comfort in being with God's people. But it is comforting because it centers on the gospel to grow you, to sanctify you, to make you more holy, to be more like Christ. And it surely is good to be in his hands, although it is absolutely terrifying and not easy. And God uses this church, God used the church through every single one of us, through relationships, both difficult and challenging as we learn what it means to love God and love others, to friend others, friend one another in the eyes of the watching world. Church, won't you join me in that endeavor together? Finally, at the heart of Saul's broken friendship, it's not only his failed relationship with oneself, 
Not only his failed relationship with others, but ultimately the tragedy is his failed relationship with God himself. Westminster Confession of Faith, Larger Catechism, question number one asks, what is the chief and the highest, what is the highest end of man? Another way to ask is, why are you created? What is our purpose in life? And the answer is, man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and to fully enjoy Him forever. It's to glorify God and to fully enjoy Him forever. Again, another way to say is, you and I are created to be in relationship with God and to be a friend of God. As Saul's broken friendship is on the full display in this chapter, the heartbreaking thing, as we see, is Saul's failed relationship with God. Not once throughout this chapter and the subsequent chapters will come, we see Saul crying out to God, who places him to be a king. We find Saul in disarray in this chapter. Here is a fallen king who is unable to call on God for help and cringe before the presence of mighty Goliath. In the face of a young warrior, David, he struggles with sin of envy and ultimately results in desire to kill David. He is absolutely terrified, though he is a king. He seems to have all the power in the world, but yet he is more fearful than ever before. And throughout this chapter, we see God playing a role. Though he's not explicitly mentioned, we see the references of God being with David and the fear of God as a result of that. The contrast of David and Saul as David as an object of God's love through God's presence and Saul's lack of it is evident throughout. There's four references to God's David's success in verse 14, 15, 30. Three references to God beginning being with David, 12, 14, and 28. And six references to David as being the object of love. And three references to Saul's fear and awe of David. All this to highlight a despite consistent reminder through David, Saul's continuously giving into envy, jealousy, anger, and sin, rather than turning, crying out to the Lord for deliverance. And in verse 10, we read this, The next day a harmful spirit of God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing liar. The word raved here can be translated as he prophesied. And it is the same word, actually, we find in 1 Samuel 10.10 and 1 Samuel 19, where Saul prophesied. An otherworldly expression of being filled with the Spirit. But the two experiences are similar, but one is from the evil, but one is from the Spirit of the Lord. And this verse highlights God's way of judging sin in line with, in line with Romans chapter 1, verse 24. What we're reminded is God will give you more of what you choose to dwell in. As Saul chose envy and jealousy, he was given more and more. And as a result of that, he raved in his jealousy and envy. And in the words of Pastor Tim Keller, perhaps that is the most fair but also most frightening judgment that God can give. And we're reminded in Genesis chapter 1, upon the envy of Cain, chapter 4 actually, and the murder of Abel, God speaks to Cain, describing sin, not doing what is right. And God tells Cain, sin is crouching at your door, likening to predatory animal, who is waiting to pounce to destroy your life. Sin, apart from repenting and bringing to the Lord, doesn't simply go away. I have seen this many times where when one is confronted with sin, what we normally do is we actually try to hide away from the circumstances or remove ourselves away from confrontation with ourselves, hoping the circumstance changes will change things. But that's not biblical. God loves you too much to let that go. What happens is sin hides, but it's waiting to pounce on you. It may take another month, a mother, a year, whatever it may be, but sin will eventually pounce 
and will destroy you. Because at the heart, sin is anti-God, anti-cross, anti-gospel, anti-grace. It fights to break the relationship, offer of grace, and consistent, active rebellion against God's authority. And this is a warning text for us, church. In life of Saul, we see God never declining his offer of grace. Through Samuel, through David, through the revelation of his own heart, we see that again and again and again, although Saul is rejected as the king of Israel, it takes another 10 years before David becomes a king. And despite David's opportunity to kill Saul, David does not. And despite Saul's malice that grows over the years, God's protection of David, yet another evidence of God's grace shown to Saul. Saul consistently rejects God's grace to repent. And there's failed relationship with God at end. Church, it's a warning against unrepentant sin, sin that you tend to run away from. So how can we overcome this tendency that we see? Because obviously, you and I are more like Saul than David. You and I are more like Saul in wanting to run away, especially, especially as American church. When things get difficult, we choose to go to the next thing. When circumstances are hard, you give up and say, I can't do this. We don't enter into a difficult conversation. We don't lean into each other. We rather say, I will replace you with something else. But that doesn't, that's not how God works. So how do we overcome this? How do we overcome this? There's one more grace in this story. We didn't get a chance to read this this morning. But there's an example to follow. Contrast to Saul, we see another response of God's revelation through David. Pastor Omari will cover this more in detail in two weeks. But in the beginning of chapter 18, we see Jonathan responding to David in light of what has happened in 17. 1 Samuel 18, 1, it says, As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. In verse 3, then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And verse 4 says, And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David, his armor and, his, and, in, and even his sword and his bow and his belt. You know what that represents? When he takes off his robe, gives him his sword, it's not just saying, hey man, you need a fashion makeover. Like, you can't come to my house like that. Let me just give you a new vehicle. That's not what he's saying. Basically, when he takes up the robe and puts it on David, he's saying, you be the king now. You take in the royal robe. When he gives him the sword, he's not saying, hey, this is a nice shiny watch that I got. You should get that too. I got a lot of them at home. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, you be the judge. Into your hand I commit myself to you. Obviously, you are with God, so I must submit under you. He says, take my spot. Take what is mine, and you be on the throne. Let me be under your judgment. Let me be in your hands. You be my judge. You be my king. And church, that is the gospel. That is absolutely what the gospel tells us to do. When you let go of your sword, when you come down from the throne to say, I don't know anything, to say, God, you be on the throne. Let God be my judge. To be in God's hand is better than to be anyone else. And to say, God, may you have my life. I absolutely abdicate the throne. And to say, you alone deserve the throne of the Lord. That's how you get freedom of the gospel. That's how you embrace the gospel. And that's what it means to feel and to find gospel-centered friendships, when you empty yourself to come down from the throne room of grace, to look upon the cross that saves you, and to say, if God can save me, God can save you, God calls me to love you because he has loved me, now we can be friends. This is how gospel-centered friendship can begin when we realize who we are in light of what God has done. Church, this week, you probably got a letter from my church. It's a long one, I know. Thank you for reading that. If you haven't read it, I know some of you are like, I don't know where the letter is. 
please check your junk mail boxes, spam mail, it might have gone to that, but we want you to read it. I have watched, I've co-authored, and I've listened as we wrote this letter. I was confronted, I wrestled, repented with every word that we wrote down. We debated quite a lot, every word that was placed there. I was also humbled, amazed, and ultimately am grateful for our body, our leadership in sending this letter. And you know, just to give you a little glimpse of the back workings of writing this letter, our non-black leadership, our women shepherds, elders, and deacons took the lead in drafting the letter first. We wrote it in light of, in response, all that is happening in our nation. We allowed it to simmer. We wrestled with it quite a lot, debated between us, and ultimately we shared it with our black brothers and sisters in leadership. And together, we wrestled, we edited, and we prayed. And in the world that often highlights our achievements, the world that says, hey, we have done these great things, look at us. We have decided to send a letter that says we messed up, pointing our arrows inward to say we as your leadership has failed you first and foremost. We have not led you well. Church, forgive us. God, forgive us. But this letter is also an invitation, our confession of course, to you as our body that we're called to love and to cherish, to teach, to guide, to counsel, to point you towards Christ. But this letter is also an invitation for you to walk with us, telling you that we're not perfect. And you will find out we're very far from that, actually, including me right here as the first one to say. We're broken. Broken so many ways. We have so much baggage. <laughs> It will take years to unpack, but we long to be better. We long to find more of the gospel, but we long to be in God's grace more. And we need your grace too. And we need your friendship. And I'm not just saying, say the nice things to us, encourage us, keep us accountable. Speak to us. Be a friend to us. So that we can be friends as the body of Christ. The letter is an invitation to draw near with love rather than fear. With hope rather than dismay. It's not easy. Yes, of course. Who says it should be? You may find that it may be hard for you to accept or Divisions among that, that's the church, right? We are not only saying we love our church because we're all same, we all think the same, we all look the same. That's not what we're saying. We're saying we want to actively learn what it means to love our family together. Different, yet together. Beauty in diversity. Unity in being together as body of Christ. Though different. And we send this because we know that we know what we got and how we got it. And no, I'm not talking about our church dynamics or demographics or multi-ethnic nature of our church. I'm not talking about that at all. What we got and how we got it, what I'm talking about is one thing that holds us together. The gospel. The gospel shows us that you and I are loved. You and I are cherished in his eyes, and we are called to love one another, especially in this body. And the same gospel calls us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who we weep. And ultimately, gospel calls us to love one another, to be friends with one another, ultimately reflecting our friendship with Christ. He came to die so you and I can be his friend, and subsequently we can be friends with one another. John 15 verse 12. This is my commandment, Christ speaking, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, 
that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Church, we speak, we write, we repent, we wrestle together, but may God change our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we humbly come in humble repentance. As a pastor of this church, as a leader of our church, as a body of Christ, Father, we have failed in many ways to not only to live up to what you have called ourselves to be, for us to be the salt and light, to reflect who you are, and to preach the gospel boldly. We also repent in the ways that we have failed to friend others well. Lord, we have backstabbed, we have pointed fingers, we have said some nasty things to one another, rather than to embrace, to love, to sacrifice, to lose, so that Christ can win. Father, we are so often at the forefront of getting what we want rather than allowing others to see a glimpse of Christ through our loss. And Father, ultimately, we have lost in many ways to run away from your loving embrace. We have often ran away in fear rather than coming to you, knowing that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, why are we so afraid at many times when we know that it's true? Lord, have we not embraced the gospel? Father, as we wrestle with these things, especially in light of all that is going on all around us, Father, teach us to embrace the gospel again. Father, we want to be a church that's found upon the truth of the Lord and the gospel of Christ Jesus our Lord. We don't want to be swayed left and right. We want to be focused on loving God and loving others, loving every single person that's made in the image of God, regardless of their skin color, regardless of their background, and to stand together for the sanctity of life, both unborn as well as the black bodies. Father, unite our church. Find the beauty in diversity as you grow to long to be Church of Revelation 7. Thank you for this time. Father, may the word change our hearts. May the word of the Lord penetrate deep within, transform our lives. There could be people that will follow you all the days of our life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.